we did a lot of research and um, so I needed developers who were, um, you know, curious and uh, who were not afraid of, of experimenting and, uh, you know, trying out things and open to learn from others. And so that's the sort of team that I tried to compile. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me the next 30 minutes of your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of speaking with Haimo Meran who is a serial entrepreneur, angel investor, fund investor, and now currently head of product at UserSnap, a platform dedicated to getting feedback from customers and other external users. This was a great episode as we talk all things regarding product investment, what a great product process looks like and how to do product management really, really, really well. Um, Jaime really is a specialist. Um, He has got amazing, incredible experience having founded two companies and had two exits as well as helping to build what is now um, UserSnap, which seems to be like an incredible platform. Ultimately, they're making feedback much, much better, which is totally needed in any organization that's building products. Uh, We also talk about what he looks for in companies and founders as an entrepreneur um, and in founding teams. So this was a really great episode in terms of him really distilling what he looks for in a founding team. And if the founder team have these vital ingredients, they will ultimately be able to produce a great product. And the example that he used of one of his investments is Tia, which is currently valued at just under a billion dollars in Berlin. So I think his thesis actually does work. This was a great episode. Really enjoyed sitting down with Hamer. All right, let's get into the action. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for being, uh, for having me and, uh... Yeah. So, Haima, when you are out and about, how do you introduce yourself to people? Um, entrepreneur. So, yeah, that's probably the most accurate description. Uh, I like to work uh, with teams and uh, uh, create uh, a meaningful company. That's, I guess, my passion. That's a very strong introduction (laughs) um cool so listen we're going to talk about your entrepreneurial um, endeavors your exits your investments etc but before we get into that um i want to start from the beginning i always like to start at the beginning with all uh my guests so how did you get into this line of work like where did you grow up and and how did you get involved in, in tech um it was with 12 years actually when my father had a a small, really, really small countryside company and his business needed a computer and he was not unable to use it. And so I started getting into computers and helped him use it. And then I learned that um, with very simple tricks, I could sort of make his life a lot easier. And that's where, how I earned my <laughs> first money with 12 to 13 years old, just helping out with computer problems of his and his friends. And that sort of passion, uh, just, uh, you know, I just kept it up and I was looking into QBasic was the first, uh, touch with a programming language. 
And while all my other friends used computers to play games, I wanted to write games and learn how it works and things behind. And they bought a you know, ready-to-use computer and I disassembled them and recomposed them and tried to understand them. And um, yeah, that just uh, continued to um, you know, be my passion. And I, um, when I started my studies in 1995, uh, my parents didn't really want me to study computers because it was so abstract to them and it sort of pushed me into a direction, more solid direction, uh, chemical engineering. Mm. So I did that, but I financed my studies with, uh, again, programming. And then I met friends and we landed a really large project uh, that then became uh, my first company. Wow, that's a, I'm sure your parents are happy you took that course, but then they weren't happy about the job that you took out. <laughs> um, and your first company, what was your first company? Is that um, Gentix Software? Yeah, that's correct. And so what did you do? We, built, we started building a CMS uh, product. Uh, okay, for those who don't know what CMS is, content management system. Yeah, right? that's correct. Content management system. Uh, in the early 2000 years, uh, it was hard to manage large companies' websites. And we won a tender for the Austrian telecommunication company against IBM and with, only with screenshots. And uh, we needed to deliver the product in a few wow. weeks' time. And that's where we sat down and started coding it, <laughs> what we had screenshots for. And we delivered it, I think, with one week delay or so. And they, um, they were 13 years customer of Gentix. And wow. that was the foundation of that company. And at the time, it was you and a few friends? Yeah, exactly. It's just me so, and a few friends. Uh, in a garage, me and my friends in a garage working 24 hours uh, to get this done. And you beat IBM in a, in a tender. That's a, that's a story within itself. <laughs> um, so, so you built this CMS system, you had a customer, and then I assume you got more customers. Like, how did you guys continue to grow the business? Um, you know, did you raise money for it? How big, how big was, this, was this going? Yeah. So we didn't raise money. Um, we used the money we got from this gig uh, to sort of hire a team, get an office and grow the company and then uh, try to, to add products to this first product. So we added a portal product, a tracking product and a few other products and try to acquire similar customers with that reference. Uh, we had a happy customer. We had a happy reference, a good reference we could use to sell uh, this product to more people and we wanted to be a software company, but now hindsight, I know we have never been really a software company. We have been more a company that sold a license as a reason for a large company company to use our services because they bought our license and then they sort of are stuck with the knowledge with us and we delivered a lot of services. So Gentix wanted to be a software company. It was a consulting company, really. And it grew up to about 40 people. 
and was then uh, we had really like large Austrian companies with uh, 60,000 employees and hundreds of thousands of websites in one system managed with 27 languages. It was really a high end uh, content management system. And the company was then sold to the Austrian press agency and is still part of the Austrian press agency and their digital offering. Wow. That's a, that's incredible. And obviously this is your first time as an entrepreneur. So you're probably thinking this is quite straightforward. Uh, what were, common, what were some of the, the roadblocks that you guys experienced? I mean, growing from an initial four man team in a garage to 40 people servicing, you know, companies with thousands of employees, like how, what were some of the growing pains? What were some of the challenges? Was the product quite simple once you had built it or was it something that was continuously iterated upon or tailored to different customers? Yes, exactly. Iterated and tailored and that was problematic. So we had a lot of customer driven development was a sales driven company. That was another pain. Uh, constantly fighting between what sales wanted to actually achieve a deal and what product wanted to be more independent. But I think the major problems were founder problems. So we were five founders initially, and at the end we were left as three. And that is really tough uh, if you're very young, unexperienced, and you know a lot of emotions involved in discussions. And you don't really use facts to, you know, make decisions. <laughs> you use emotions a lot. Yeah. And that was very painful. And also we had two crises to go through. In 2003, we had a major crisis, uh, economic crisis that stopped large companies in, you know, continuing projects with us. And because we were so much project dependent, we had to cut down and let people go, uh, a large number of people. And that was really, really hard. And a similar thing happened in 2008 with uh, GFC. And a similar story there. We survived both of these crises and yep. uh, exited uh, stronger than before because most of the company, or a lot of companies around us, they defaulted. We had enough uh, money in, a, in the account to sort of go through. And then when business came back, we were ready and we were, you know, a little bit bigger than the others or some competitors just disappeared and we could pick up that market. Wow. That's incredible. And, you know, the exit, you know, was it a good exit? Like, how did it go? Yeah. So it was an okay exit. It was not uh, super large. But it was okay. So the company at that time had um, good cash flow, had uh, good customers, uh, had a good team, and um, it was a good exit. It sort of just almost happened. And we're after 13 years working in this company and being stuck with a consulting company that aimed to be a product company. That sort of frustration, not uh, you know, not getting over that hurdle. Uh, also led to the founders deciding, well, okay, maybe an exit is a good thing. And then we sort of can see, uh, you know, how we can grow with it, with other company or even do something different and learn something different based on the knowledge we have. And that's what then actually happened. Right. And I guess that's what would become Wikidocs. 
Yes, exactly. So Wikidocs, the movement started within Gentix from the requirement that people wanted to edit documents, websites, and there were no tools around. And uh, that's when I learned that and, and when I started thinking about how editing should look in future and uh, Google Docs just came out and they bought Writely back then in 2009 and created Google Docs out of Writely. And then there was Etherpad. That was also uh, a technology they used, uh, you know, a specific technology to allow people to co-edit documents. And it was very hyped. They were also bought by Google. And so I looked into that direction and thought, well, this collaborative editing, that's probably a great place to be. And I tried to get into that space. And the way I did it, I just Googled everything I could find about the technology. And I found a few people that, uh, you know, wrote their thesis from university about that. And I invited them all uh, to Vienna and said, okay, look, guys, come here. We are having a conference about uh, this technology and would love to hear what you know about it. And so about 30 people came and we had these discussions and I hired uh, one a really good guy to stay with us for a few weeks and write a foundation that then became Wikidocs. And that's then where we funded the company and started going down that road. Wow, there's just uh, kind of so much to unpack there. So you were you weren't deterred by the fact that Google was investing heavily in the space. I'm going to build something else. You still thought, you know, I, might, I can still have a go and build something better, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the the claim that caught me was on their website they claimed um, operational transform, which is a sort of algorithm, is difficult if not impossible for HTML. And that sort of caught me and I thought, well, if we nailed that, that's probably really big. And yeah. so that's what we tried to solve and we, we succeeded. <laughs> so we could use operational transform on HTML and that allowed us to have a superior technique over what Google Docs did in terms of that Google Docs was limited in terms of numbers of formattings that they could support. And we, the technique we used was, you know, was unlimited. We could uh, synchronize arbitrary data, which was HTML or any tree structure, really, and synchronize that data. And that was a really super exciting technology back then. It still is. <laughs> still. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and like, and at this point, did you start? You started this with your previous co-founders. That's correct. Yes. So they were, they were sort of investing money and giving me time to work on the problem while I was working, uh, mainly on this with a few other developers, uh, I was operationally working in the company and trying um, to solve this. And yeah, we needed three iterations of different technologies and algorithms that we changed and tried out and had to go back and forth and then eventually succeeded. When you're, I guess, building something like this that is, you know, has been told that is impossible to build or, you know, would be great if it could happen, but you know, the likes of Google and other big players haven't been able to solve that problem. 
how do you how do you start something like this? Like you start with an initial hypothesis, um, then you sit down with like the development team. Like what's kind of like the process in terms of like where do we start? Like I know you said you did some research and you were looking at you know various yeah. and like PhDs etc. But like in terms of like building, how do you go about building this? Yes, we did a lot of research, and um, so I needed developers who were, um, you know, curious and uh, who were not afraid of of experimenting and uh, you know trying out things and open to learn from others. And so that's the sort of team that I tried to compile, and 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 that worked. So we tried a lot of things and we had a lot of, you know, that ends where we said, okay, this doesn't work. We need to go back or we thought we solved it. And then we tried it out with people and it, you know, dramatically failed. And so a lot of failure was there until we slowly, you know, uh, could understand the problem better and had solutions for the key parts that were actually the road blockers. And we found workarounds for those parts. And they became more solid. And then over time, it just evolved uh, by polling, polishing it out, you know, and uh, going into the edge cases. And um, and that's how we solved it. So I, th- I would say curious people, highly engaged curious people, bringing them together um, uh, if they have an open mind and are not afraid of failure then uh, you can do it and it's actually very motivating to work on such a such a problem because the you know the um, the pleasure of succeeding <laughs> is so enormous because if you say i succeeded in something where google said this is difficult if not impossible it's just a, a such a great story to tell and that was super motivating for everybody in the team to work on this absolutely i can imagine it's almost like you know it's a challenge that you have taken upon yourself. Yeah. Uh, and everybody, like every good entrepreneur likes a good challenge. <laughs> um, and so, you know, how, once you had figured out how to solve this problem, um, how did you get this to market? Like what were the strategies you put in place? Obviously you had a lot of experience, one of the consultancy business. Um, yeah. So sales must've been something you were quite comfortable with as a team. How did, how did you grow this? Yeah, exactly. So we were comfortable at sales, but we knew that uh, out of Austria, we could not do anything here. So we needed to be in the Silicon Valley. And that was, I think, 2013, 14, 2013, 14, around that that area. And uh, we needed somebody with a network in the area. And so that's when I uh, started uh, shopping VC. And we wanted a VC that understands the European sort of business, but also has an existing network in the US that can help us uh, sell the technology in sort of license the technology. And that's how I met um, Speed Invest. And they had a few people in the US with experience, uh, also former founders. And uh, we sort of made the deal and the deal included uh, sales support and intro- introduction into large businesses that uh, might be interested in the technology. And uh, that's how we came together. Uh, we allowed them to invest in the company <laughs> and uh, as a return for us, we could use their network. And, and that was super exciting because the way I sold the technology, I bought a few iPads back then. And I had the iPads uh, with me, uh, 
on every um, sales uh, appointment we had and distributed the iPads and then I gave them and so this is what we have. You can write on the other seat and you can do it with every website. And then when the people were in there, they started typing and then deleting each other characters and there was immediately they were smiling and having fun. Mm. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's the whole you know when you're pushing investors, uh, don't don't tell me, show me kind of thing, right? Yeah. Yes. But I think the crucial bit was they had these iPads in their hand. iPad was really new at the time. And then they could, you know, interact with each other. This today seems very normal and, you know, in everyday's work. But back then, it was only Google Docs doing this. It was really exciting for some of these people to do this. And just, you know, being seeing the other's cursor and typing and doing this was super exciting. It created a, such, a, such a fun atmosphere that, you know, the whole meeting immediately was on a positive side. And uh, it, for business, it was hard, though. Uh, the first meeting I remember, the very first meeting in Silicon Valley I had, uh, after 10 minutes, we had the CTO in the room. And after 20 minutes, we had the CEO in the room. Yeah. And after 30 minutes, we had the first offer to buy the company. And that was overwhelming. So I was completely surprised and overwhelmed. We, I didn't know what, what to say at this point. Yeah. Didn't expect that. And this was sort of the problem. We had such an exciting technology. A lot of company wanted it, but they couldn't afford to buy us or didn't want to buy us. Yeah. And they didn't want to buy license because they were afraid in three months down the road, we would be acquired by somebody else and they would be stuck and potentially had a competitor that they have a license contract with. So it was sort of an exciting situation, but also sort of a dead end. <laughs> yeah, it kind of puts you in this weird gray area. Yeah. You don't really know where. So, I mean, from the research, I could see that, you know, uh, Wikidocs was around for just two, two and a half years. So what happened in the end with Wikidocs? Yes. So at the end, we, we were uh, before this T-junction and we had the opportunity to build a product on top of the technology, uh, raise uh, a large amount of money to support the product development. Or we could go shop around and say, if we find uh, a company that's interested enough in in paying the price that all the stakeholders of the company would be willing to sell the company. And so, so that's what we did. We did both. So we looked for investors in, for Series A uh, and tried to get uh, enough support and uh, commitments to invest in the company and at the same time try to get offers and term sheets for selling the company. And that turned out to be a good approach. And eventually, uh, the, the company was sold to Atlassian and everybody was happy. And I was particularly happy because Atlassian at the point was an extremely exciting company. Yeah. And I could join that company at a very exciting time. Yeah. Was this, I guess, for those who don't know, Atlassian, they, they also created Jira, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes. They had um, Jira. Were you guys using Jira at the time? No. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, no, that's awesome. And so the acquisition happened. Um, everybody was happy. I guess at the time you only had your initial co-founders and speed investors investors, right? Yes, that's correct. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, I'm assuming it was, you know, 
five extra time. Everyone was happy. Yes. Uh, so for you as an entrepreneur, you know, two out of two so far, right? Like two, two companies. Um, but I'm sure, I mean, the way you told the story was beautiful, of course. Um, but I'm sure it wasn't all smooth sailing the whole time. And that you did allude to, you know, being in that weird gray, gray area with Wikidoc in terms of like companies not wanting to license, they wanted to buy. Um, I just want to talk a bit about, I know we delved into this earlier, but like the product management process. So you have had great experience as a founder. And I also think that founders sometimes end up becoming great product managers just because you know, a good product manager has the altitude to look at the business from every angle, right? It's business, it's sales, it's tech, it's backend, it's wherever you, everything is involved in product. So in your experience, like what are some of the, the key ingredients you need in order to be a good product manager? And, and what's a good product management process? That's really good questions. <laughs> 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 Okay, uh, I tried to, you know, to come up with a summary um, that sort of uh, does this justice. But what I believe, I believe a good product manager uh, should have his hands all over the company. So it's, it's a sort of a bridge role between uh, the three core functions of a company, right? So I, I would define the core function as there is a sell function. There is a make function and there is an operate function and the product management is sort of the, um, you know, the bit where all the, th all the knowledge comes together and it sh should help to distribute that knowledge to help each of these functions, uh, make better decisions. Uh, so that for the customer and the user, uh, everything, uh, appears as to be coming from you know, one hand and one voice and, and feels the same for every interaction they have with the company. And that's sort of, in my opinion, one of, of the roles of a uh, product manager, um, in terms of, uh, what they need to look at is obviously they need to, to understand the customers. They need to understand the business and try to find, um, needs and gaps in the market uh, that are big enough and good enough opportunities for the business to invest so that the return that the business gets uh, is a viable business. So this would be, in my opinion, the core things that they need to look after. Now, in terms of what makes them successful, uh, that's a whole different story because a lot of the product managers work is, uh, managing relationships really, and, uh, trying to be helpful to make the best decisions that the teams can, right? So, so they would try to, you know, try to collect data from customer research or user research and, and try to collect all this data. And then they need to convey the learnings to the team and, uh, sort of ramp up the team on that knowledge, ramp up the team on the business goals and on the business needs, and then empower the team to make their own decisions. So the better they are able to, to 
convey and to upload knowledge to the team. And the better they communicate the goals, the more effective they will be as product managers and you know, in managing the team and the product. Because what happens very often is that when people go uh, in, in back to the work, they need to make small decisions. And these small decisions, they have a large impact. But if people come back to you with every small decision, then you just block everybody. You will be the bottleneck. So you need to upload knowledge and uh, have clarity on the goals so that everybody in the team can make their own decisions. And that will sort of speed up the process and uh, turn quicker to um, you know, an effective result, in my opinion. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's great, actually. I don't think I've ever heard anyone describe it in that way. Like, you need to upload knowledge. That, I think that's a great way of putting it. Wow, yeah. okay. we'll do that one again, actually. <laughs> um, no, that's awesome. And so, I guess, can you think of a time where, I guess, the way you're thinking about product management, is that something that you've always done in within your companies? And even when you went to um, at Slam, was that something that you saw was prevalent in the organization? Because obviously, once you were acquired, I assume you 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 know you went on to stay there for over three years. Um, you know, you must have been involved in a lot, and it's a huge company. So, did they have the process down to a T the way you described it, or is this still kind of like in an ideal world? Mm, Atlassian had this pretty much, and I think that's where I learned it. So, prior to Atlassian. I had no idea what good product management was. So I, I, I read some things and I tried to understand and grasp it, but I wasn't really able to truly transform what I could read about product management, truly transform that into day-to-day -day action. So I was incapable. And that's also why I was afraid to go down the product road with uh, Wikidocs or why Gentix was not able to become a product company and was just a consulting company. I, I just didn't know how to do it. And Atlassian really was, uh, was at the stage where they were about to shape the, the way team works together. And back then, Atlassian, the whole company was a huge laboratory where Atlassian itself tried out how could teams become more effective and what could we do? And so in the management team, we were encouraged to work with teams on improving processes, documenting those processes and changes and sharing with everybody. Uh, Atlassian did a lot of knowledge sharing and then um, we had a team um, compiling the knowledge and creating playbooks out of this knowledge. And uh, that's sort of the result are the Atlassian playbooks that you can actually, you know, access. If you Google them, you can see them. And so we were in a constant process of improving the teams and the processes, documenting, writing playbooks, sharing the changes and the impact those changes had. And, and that's where I learned uh, a few of the greatest product managers I know, including uh, Mike Cannon Brooks, one of the founders, and, and uh, Sharif, uh, who, who I was working a short time with uh, at Confluence. They were sort of 
my <laughs> ideals idols in in terms of product management mentors yeah uh, yeah and and i learned a lot from them but also from many other people at atlassian that uh, tried to improve the processes right and and i think one of the key things on how you can improve and that's independent whether you're a product manager or whatever you do is uh, the uh, write a playbook right and have instructions what others need to do to be to achieve the same success that you have with something or avoid a failure that you did in the past if you start writing playbooks and it's really hard to write playbooks that others can understand but the process itself is a huge learning and so that's because we had to do this all the time and we had these playbooks and we're working with them i think that's where you when you constantly learn and improve and try to compress the message and elaborate the key elements that make this process successful or not. And obviously you need to do a lot of reflection on the process, right? So, so uh, you and the team needs to reflect on the process and the changes of the process. Right. And so I want to switch gears now and talk a bit more about your, your angel investing. Um, so you, you mentioned you do some angel investing. What kind of companies do you look for, um, or founders rather? Mm -hmm. uh, do you have a, a certain affinity towards like more deep tech uh, products, B two B products? Like, what's your what's your thesis on angel investing? So, I think I invest the the, the I invest more in, in teams, uh, in engaged teams. So, if the team is right, then um, uh, that's probably the best qualifier. Uh, it's hard to say when the team is right, but um, most of the time, the teams, the, if they have prior experience as founders or worked at a larger company, or at least one member worked at a larger company, then usually they are good teams in, in my terms. So I believe that if, if uh, you have worked in a larger highly effective organization and you have been there in like a decent role then you have learned a, a lot about uh, process effectiveness and that's something i believe that's relevant even for smaller companies and if you have always been uh, a sort of a smaller entrepreneur or you are first-time entrepreneur and you have not the knowledge about how an organization thrives especially if they are in hyper growth or, or specifically successful. And if you don't have this knowledge, it's really hard for you to build the foundations and understand the effects that need uh, to put in place to make a team successful. So, and, and that's what I look successful teams. And usually if you have these successful members in the team, then usually the product approach is right the timing in the market is right. The data that they present is right. And then, you know, it all fits into place and it all, you know, just looks solid. And then this is uh, what I'm looking for. Um, that's great. And is there a company, uh, can you talk through one of the companies that you've invested in? Um, you know, that, that kind of meets that criteria that you're, what the, you, that you're looking for. Yes. So, well, this was not really an angel investment, 
but uh, I came in at a little bit a later later stage, but it was still um, it was a series A, still a, a good example. Uh, tier, it's the scooter company, for instance. Oh, yeah, I know uh, Lawrence and Matthias. Yeah, exactly. So then, then probably you know, <laughs> this is very well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's a great team. And yeah. they, they had a great anticipation of the wave that we sort of were expecting, right? This transition of mobility. Uh, so that's also key um, that you sort of sit on a wave that's just pushing you. And then if you had the right people in managing the company, then you just can ride this wave. And that's what they did, uh, you know, really well. <laughs> yeah, very, very well. Uh I just spoke to Matthias earlier this week. Um, yeah, no, so it's a great company. And even during the pandemic, you know, they, they were still in a good position. Um, yes, absolutely, yeah. Because I know Berlin were, you know, like most countries in, in Europe, were, you know, on lockdown. Um, and given just the nature of tier, you would have thought that it would have been very difficult. But they, they found a way to still remain relevant and in use um, during that time. So it, it, they're a great team for sure. Yeah. Looks like that's going to be a, a good exit for you as well. <laughs> um, okay, no, that's, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. And so now, um, obviously, you are with User Snap. Um, for those who don't know or haven't heard of User Snap, what, what is User Snap? What do you do there? What's the product? Yes. So, User Snap, um, I joined as a co founder when the company was already around for quite a while. And the original product is visual bug tracking. It's a product that you can embed into a product or website and it would provide a feedback button. And if you click the button, you could give feedback to the product and it would automatically create a screenshot of the website that you're seeing and you can draw and write and annotate and, you know, show sort of what your problem is or your idea or whatever. And we would collect this data along with a lot of metadata and then it would go back to the, to the company and they would see, oh, this user has this problem and they are using that browser with that version on that operating system. And we, and they were on version X of our deployment. And so it makes it very easy to identify issues. And that's where the company is coming from. And uh, since I joined uh, almost uh, one and a half years ago, uh, we are in a transition to extend that original product into uh, different spaces because we learned that people using that for bug tracking, they also collected other types of feedback ideas or they used it for research or um, they did customer interactions with it when customers had a problem they were just this was a way to communicate with the customer and so we are sort of building this platform where uh, we allow our customers to have all sorts of different types of feedback interactions with their customers and provide a way to uh, work with feedback effectively. And this is um, such a great mission that I believe in uh, that we're on our go now. And it is that I believe that 
feedback is the way to grow. So I can only personally grow if I listen to feedback. And in order to listen, I need to create an environment where feedback is uh, encouraged and it's possible to give me feedback and people are actually empowered to give me feedback. And then I can use this feedback to sort of improve myself as a person. And the exact same thing is what we will provide companies. We'll provide companies to create an environment where they are open to feedback. They have places where customers can go to and give feedback. And they have then uh, instruments to communicate with those engaged customers and use that feedback to make better decisions, improve their products and grow more effectively. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's awesome. And this is quite a, a new company, right? Well, the company is around uh, six years old. Um, so, yeah, so, it's six, so it has been founded six years ago. But like I said, the, the direction that we are going and it went to quite some changes in the past. And the direction we are going now is pretty new to the company and to the team. And yeah. And how, how, how big is the team at the moment? So the team is now 17 people and it's located partially in Linz, uh, a tiny industrial city in Austria and partially in Vienna. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. And what's kind of like, well, I'll get to this later, but your vision, your goal, with the product, like how, how far do you want this to go? Um, you know, are, are people, are customers taking to it really well? Like, is there opportunities to scale this? Yes, absolutely. So there, there is a tremendous opportunity to scale this. Uh, we have already seen this uh, taking on the market. It's basically part of the larger um, digitalization wave because uh, more and more companies uh, have more digital offering and they sort of have less and less a face-to-face -face shop or, or place where people can go and instead have digital offerings. Uh, so they're losing touch with our customer. And by losing this touch and sense of what customers think and need and how they behave and so on, so they need to learn more about the customer on the digital platform. Now you can do a lot with data you can monitor, you can see when there are spikes and peaks and changes and all these things. You can do all of those with analytics and data. But to truly understand the why these things happen, that you need to talk to the customer. And you cannot have conversation with every customer, but you can provide a form of expression so customers can, if they want to, uh, tell you what's bothering them. And so we have done uh, uh, some research uh, about can we extract the, the same information from microsurveys, like really small open questions, as from face-to-face, um, one-on-one -face, -on -one interviews with customers. And uh, we have done this with a very small sample test that we ran. And it was, we had about 20 interviews and, and about 60 participants in this microsurvey. And turns out that the outcome is very similar. So it was very similar. Only for the interviews, 
It took us about 100 hours to complete that. And the survey was done in a few hours with, you know, almost no work involved. Wow. So the amount of time you can save by asking the right questions to the right people is tremendous. And if you can answer small questions um, and understand what customers need and what, what they sort of, what their motives behind that is what they say or experience, if you can truly understand and extract that, automatically that's a huge benefit and saves a lot of money so and this is the opportunity that we are after um, using um, micro qualitative surveys to answer uh, questions for product teams specifically and that is that is sort of the, the opportunity and the vision because you asked that is that in future, we want to be the, the feedback platform for software companies, for SaaS companies. And all types of feedback, we will provide tools and methods to uh, create spaces where customers can give feedback, um, collect feedback from tools and platforms that are already existing for these companies, and also provide tools to actively ask customers along the journey, the right questions. And all this data will be accessible to user researchers, product managers, designers, and development teams to access, digest, and learn so that they can make better product decisions. That sounds, no, that sounds awesome. I know probably after we release this show, we'll probably get a ton of <laughs> inbound because we have a lot of kind of like entrepreneurs and product managers and, and uh, SaaS teams who listen to the show. So I'm sure they would love to get their hands on something like this, for sure. Zayma, um, I want to work towards wrapping up now. Um, and at the end of each episode, I always ask all guests a series of rapid-fire questions. Um, you know, they only require one to two word answers, um, if possible, but I may ask you to elaborate. But um, let's see how we go. So, so sorry, sorry, one word or one sentence? It's I, I try and say one word, but usually it is a sentence. So we can, we can say a sentence for now. Um, so who has or what has been your biggest inspiration? Atlassian. Okay. Favorite podcast? I don't actually listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, the worst answer. <laughs> really bad answer for this format. Um, Yes, I'm I'm bad. Uh, favorite blog? Favorite blog? Um, Why Combinator? Ah, interesting. Uh, favorite book? Jobs to be done. Who's that by? Um, Anthony Ulrich. Favorite Twitter or Instagram account? <laughs> Elon Musk. Okay. Uh, what do you wish you could do that you currently can't do? I I wish I could write better. Hmm. Uh, just general writing, blog writing, or. Uh, yeah, blog writing, uh, like um, writing a piece, an appealing piece of content. 
I'm just incapable. Okay. Uh, what's the advice you'd give to your 21-year-old self? To my, uh, how old? 21. 21. Um, explore the world. I, th- I, I, I think you did do that. <laughs> Uh, you, you did do a bit of traveling. Um, if you had a hundred dollars in your favorite city, what would you spend it on and where? Um, f- local food. How, how local? Where, 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 local to where? Yeah. To where you are now? well local to the to the city where i would be right so i i i think from food you can learn a lot about the culture and and so you need to find a a local place with a local chef and then being that local place and experiencing that local food uh, tells me a lot about the culture and so that's that's how i would spend uh, money in a foreign city okay um What's the one thing startups should ignore in the early days? Their gut feeling. Interesting. Say more about that. I think that a lot of founders make a lot of decisions based on gut feeling and they should more look into data. Data is just more reliable and gut feeling is so volatile. So there's some lucky shots, I believe, that we're lucky with gut feeling, but say a lucky shot. And uh, if you look at data, if you collect data and you use data to make decisions, you're more effective in decision-making and you will achieve your goal much faster. That's good. That's, uh, I, I actually agree with that. But I guess in order to have data, though, there has to be uh, an initial hypothesis. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The hypothesis has to come from a gut feeling, right? Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, I admit, I admit. So maybe then let's say um, do less gut feeling decisions. Okay, we'll go with that one. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, Imo, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, if people want to get in contact with you or find out more, uh, where can they find you? Um, in the UserSnap team page, uh, I'm also on Twitter and LinkedIn, and you can you can find me by googling Haimo. It's H A Y M O M E R A N, and that's a very unique name. So there will be lots of opportunities. Awesome! Thank you so much for coming on the show. I thank you, Philip. It was great to uh, speak with you and having this conversation. Thank you very much. Just want to say another huge thank you to Haimo and the team for organizing Haimo coming on the show. Um, they reached out because they thought he would be a great guest and he definitely did not disappoint. I really loved his idea and his thoughts around a product manager needs to be able to upload information and not be a bottleneck. I think that was very, very spot on and something, like I said, I haven't heard before um, from other product managers and CTOs we've had on the show. So that was really, really a great way to explain that. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please like and subscribe on the Apple Podcasting app or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time, guys, keep grinding.